Hello and welcome to The Intersection. I'm Mark Riley. Thank you so much for joining us. I have to admit I have overdosed on news about Ukraine. Developments are moving very, very quickly and monitoring various media has taken a lot out of me. It is truly taxing. We'll take this up in next week's episode because maybe, just maybe, there'll be some kind of resolution. However, on this, the final weekend of Black History Month, I've decided to do something suggested to me by an old and dear friend, Ronnie Finley. Drum and Bugle Corps. To those who know little about it, it's pretty much the same thing as marching band. To those who love it, like me, it's something much, much more. At one time, there were thousands of drum corps across America in big cities and small towns. Unique among them were all black drum corps. Many were centered in the New York City area, as well as Newark, New Jersey, Chicago, and St. Louis. To a seasoned drum corps head, names like the Wind Center Toppers, Carter Cadets, Riversiders, Manhattaners, and more were household names among all kinds of folk, fans, and competitors. And yet in New York, one name stood out above all the rest during the 1960s and 70s. They were known as the Beasts of the East and the Black Attack. They were the Warriors, sponsored by Camp Menacing and later by the New York City Mission. Alan Peoples, also known as Boomba, and Keith Griffin were longtime members of this corps, and they sat down with me to talk about the Warriors and the crucial role it played in their lives. It's a pleasure to welcome to the intersection two stalwarts of the CMCC Warriors from back in the day, Mr. Alan Peoples, AKA Boomba, and Mr. Keith Griffin. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being with us. Let me ask each of you in turn, maybe starting with you, Keith, how did you get into drum corps and what drew you to the Warriors? Well, the Warriors were set up as, um, they were set up like a machine. The Warriors had a cadet corps, and uh, choir, uh, uh, campers, all kinds of setup for their corps to feed into the drum corps. I was a member of the cadets, and so was the rest of my family. I really had no choice in joining the Warriors. And uh, this cadet corps had around 3,000 kids. Wow. And uh, amongst these 3,000 kids were drill teams, steel band, choirs, sewing group, all kinds of instrumentation that fed into the Warriors. They never asked you to be a member of the Warriors because they always had enough members. And so, oh. so that, I was six years old when I joined the cadets and um, I joined the Warriors probably around nine years old. So I was a member of this 3,000 member cadet corps. All right. That's how I got into Warriors. And Boomba, how about you? Like I said, I came to Warriors in 1967. I was 11 years old. I came from another corps that was in Harlem called the Travelers from the mm-hmm. 28th Precinct in Harlem. Mm-hmm. And I joined the Warriors because it was so magnificent in sound and what they were doing. So I just went and I joined them. You guys were really the most prominent Black drum corps of your time or any other time for that matter. What made the Warriors so special? The unity and wanting to be the best. 
we didn't know we were going to be the best, but we cut. We started seeing calls like Sack, Boston, um, Best Playing Vanguards. And we said, wow, we got it better than that. We can't come around and play in this little bit of winky dinky music. We got to get down. So that's what we did. We started practicing and playing hard. And it drew the other people of the area. And we and the people the people that came to us want the same thing. So it made us good. We always felt like, and, and our directors never told us, oh yeah, um, you got the shaft. We always felt like uh, we weren't getting a proper score. And I thought it was because of um, uh, DCI. When DCI came into effect, um, our score started going down. In 1970, before DCI, we were getting an even shake. We went to World Open, we came in fifth, and I thought it was justified. I thought it was a real score, and I thought all the cores, except for Boston Crusaders, were better than us. Mm -hmm. You know, I thought, you know, the, the top three cores, we should have probably been in fourth, maybe fifth, and then Boston was from that area, so I could see it, I could understand it. But um, when 71, 72 rolled around, we went to we went to US Open in 71 and took horns and took horns and drums and didn't make the finals. You took horns and drums and did not make the finals. And did not make the finals. And they said our they said our drill was like a three-ring circus, which they might have been right. And no, no disrespect to Al Koch, but he didn't write the best <laughs> drills out. You know, we could march by then, but the drill wasn't, the formations weren't all that. Yeah. But but by 71 and 72, we weren't getting the cores that the scores that were commensurate with our performances and our horn line in 72. I mean, we were winning horns. We were we tied with Anaheim at um at CY. We beat Anaheim by a tenth at CYL Nationals. I and, remember that. And, 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 and we were outscoring everybody in horns, but we just weren't getting the scores in drill. And I thought they were dropping us unnecessarily because of our, um, our formations and because of the fact that DC, we weren't going to DCI. And you guys weren't, St. Rita's wasn't going either. No. And so those cores were not getting the shake, the DCI handshake to say, all right, come on. Let's go. I mean, we were getting beaten by apple knockers. <laughs> From upstate New York, yeah. Yes, yes. So I was like, no, that's that's not the way it's supposed to be. And that's when I felt like we were really getting shafted. And my friend, I was going away to school at that point, and my friends were telling me about DCI. I really didn't know about the formation of it, but they were telling me about DCI, and they told me this, listen, we need to be going. Mm -hmm. And we weren't going, so they wanted to stay in the community and do a community-based organizational thing. And um, most of the people in the core, we wanted to go and compete with the big boys. Yeah. Boomba, what about you? What did you think, A, about, about the scoring, but also if you ever experienced any kind of racism, uh, you know, going because it happened. To, it happened to a group of us once when I was in the Shoreliners in 1969. We stopped at a a diner uh, in North Jersey, and we were the first ones in there. And 
everybody else came in and all of the other people in the diner, everybody else in the core got their meals and we were still sitting there waiting. And that was something I will never, ever, ever forget. Well, what happened was, at least when I was looking at it, we used to go to shows and we would play. After the show, we were waiting for the scores to come out. Mm-hmm. And they would. And calls would beat us, not by a lot, but just beat us. And as I'm leaving Troop in the Stands, the people screaming, y'all got shafted. What happened? When you got shafted, I kept saying, why do they keep saying we got shafted? Because they knew that they did it to us. They did it with intent. And we knew it. Now I was saying to myself, well, why don't they do something about it? And, you know, it was just a, a thing of just being shattered a lot. 72, we got murdered all year long, all year long. I, I'm telling you, we were not bad at all. Tell me about Jimmy Lathan. Well, he was a good director, but it was very forceful. But, you know, it was a time for that. Was he, he forceful? Had, when I say forceful, he carried a strong hand. Let me tell you, Jimmy Lathan one time punched somebody knocked him over the chair and the chair folded up. <laughs> oh, Let me tell you, Jimmy Latham was Jimmy Latham was a terror to that call. If it wouldn't be for James Cook and Jimmy Latham's in combination, then we may not have had a call. Cause you know, he used to do something. He was, a, he was a real man. He was a, he was a Mr. New York, a Mr. Universe. So he was a bodybuilder. So yeah. he wasn't scared of nobody. And, you know, we had a lot of tough black kids from all over the city, you know? So he had to kind of be like that in order to keep that core in line and keep that discipline at the level that it was on. Gentlemen, I want to thank you so much. We got to leave it there because I got to fit all this in what is essentially a 25 minute podcast. But Keith, Boomba, thank you so much, man. I really, okay. really appreciate this. In addition to the New York-based Black Drum Corps, Washington, D.C. was home to several corps, the most prominent of which were the VIPs. During the late 60s and early 70s, the corps traveled up and down the East Coast. Like many of the other Black Drum Corps, the VIP were a life-changing organization, and their color guard was winning local and national honors. The other hotbed of Black Drum Corps activity was St. Louis. They participated in contests in Missouri and Illinois, and some traveled to national competitions as well. I had a chance to talk to LaPal Wilson, who belonged to several of those St. Louis Corps. He told me about the bonding those members have with each other and why, surprisingly, some members don't like to talk about their time in drum corps, even to this day. All right, it is a pleasure to welcome to the intersection from St. Louis, Missouri, Mr. LaPal Wilson. How you doing? Oh, hang it in there. All right, thank you so much for doing this with us. When did you start marching and what corps did you march in? I started marching at 14 years old uh, here in St. Louis with the Memorial Lancer. I was in the eighth grade and uh, my whole family was in another competing corps in St. Louis, the American Woodman Cadet. They got mad at me because I'm 
not killing the Lancers. The Lancers was like the lower end of drum corps, you know, because they wore hand-me-down uniforms and all kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And because most of the neighborhoods in St. Louis had somebody in somebody's drum corps in every neighborhood. And I would stand outside and watch these guys walk by with their horn cases and drumsticks going to practice. Mm-hmm. So I, I had to sneak with some friends of mine and tell my mother I was going to trial for the boxing team at the local recreation center. And I went to drum court practice. <laughs> and I like didn't have no key on what to do, never played a horn, none of that stuff. And I stayed with the Lancers for a few years until we merged with, as we call Big Blue from a zoo. That was Paige Park Cadet. Oh yeah, Page Park was was uh, Page Park was one of the few black drum corps that we on the East Coast knew about because we we saw Page Park like in the VFW Nationals a few times and that sort of thing. And I was I wanted to play bass horn, but they stuck me with a soprano with no mouthpiece to lamp. <laughs> I regretted that for some years, so. This would have been my freshman year in high school. I made up in my mind I was going to play bass horn. Now, I'm five foot seven. Mm. I ain't group. And I got on their nerves so bad they put me on bass horn. <laughs> well, let me, so let me ask you that, something about that. Go ahead. Well, you, there were a lot. There are a lot of black drum corps in St. Louis, and there were a lot yeah. of black drum corps in New York. There was Carter Cadets, there was Wind Center Toppers, there were, of course, the Warriors. What was it about St. Louis that spawned so many different drum corps? Was it just people were interested in it, or, or what was it about St. Louis? I'm going to sum it up in five minutes, the whole thing. We had a drum corps, as we used to call the granddaddy of drum corps. The Compound Post or the Spirit of St. Louis. Yes. In 1936, they started out as a junior corps. And they were good. But, of course, they had segregated places where they played. And what happened, a lot of them guys, when they went to the war, World War II, they spawned off a drum corps called the St. Louis Girls, all-girls corps. So when them guys came back, they made the the old junior corps spirit of St. Louis into the senior corps. And that was like 1945, 46. So from that, they spawned, as I, I keep saying spawned because it all came from that one group, uh, the American Wolf. Okay. They came, they came from that group. Then, in 1958, some guys that was part of the St. Louis, of the Spirit of St. Louis Compound Post, it was like a couple of them, they started the Memorial Lancers. Mm. Yeah, they started the Memorial Now, that was before 1960. Then they had a couple groups in the late 60s, early 70s that got started. They didn't stay around long. It was Saber's Ed. And 
and uh, uh, Patrick Henry Horn. All of them had instructors that was part of the time trial code. Really? Yep. All the same. But now, how did, how did Paige Park emerge? Paige Park seems to have emerged as a really good drum corps. Well, Paige Park, American Woodman was the, the first big drum corps here. Uh, they was they were sponsored by the American Woodman Insurance Company. So when they mysteriously lost his sponsorship in '66, uh, the uh, uh, the uh, director, I forgot one other drum corps, and it all was for the paid same family. I was in that corps too, called the PYC Law. Mm-hmm. Now, what happened? They lost the sponsorship, so they was kind of like. Drum Corps hobos, they had to rebuild. They lost all their members to the war, Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Page Corps, I mean, on Woodland. So they finally found sponsorship from Page Corps YMCA oh. here in 1968 with the same instructor that was part of the Time Power Post and American Woodland. They even had uh, Bill Hightower. Oh, yeah, I know Billy Hightower really well. He was in, he was in the Sunrisers. And I forgot who this other guy from the Cavaliers that helped him doing them doing them Page Park years. Mm-hmm. So Page Park basically aged out most of their members from their late sixties, early seventies. After seventy two, they lost all their members, so they had the younger members. I didn't know until I got grown how much racism it was. But what happened? Uh, we had a uh, DCI contender across the river in Belleville, the Belleville Black Knights. Black Knights, yeah, sure. And if you was a core coming from St. Louis, no matter how good your show was or whatever, you was not going to win over that. I don't care. If you turn flip, you did the saber dances, lasers, it didn't matter. You was not going to win in Belleville, Illinois. Now, were you but, all aware in St. Louis about the black drum corps on the East Coast? Did you know about Wind Center and Carter? I, I'm glad you asked that because those corps, honestly, they didn't know about us. We didn't know about them, but I talked to quite a few of them from the uh, Warriors. Mm-hmm. They had the same problems that we had here, money. There was only two drum corps in the history a black drum corps that made a final. And I like, when I found out who it was, I was stunned. The American Woodman took 12th place in 1958 in American yeah. Legion Yeah. 12th place. And all the corps that were, and they had an 81.12. Just imagine. You had the Beast of the East with the Warriors. And you call, we called the Woodman Woodman's the chopper because they chopped up everything and they and they passed. Page Park, we call Big Blue from Mizzou. And the last. Now I said it didn't make no sense. As good as talent as they had, we should have had two contenders come out of St. Louis between the years of 1968 and 1972. We're supposed to be in, in BFW in the top 12 every year. What happened? Mm. The talent was just just that good. And we couldn't get no further than 20th place. 
Did you guys get to travel a lot? How many shows did you have during the course of a summer? Uh, well, it depends on what core you was with, too, because some travel more than others, but they travel for the glory of travel. They didn't go, they didn't travel for the glory of winning. That was mm. the lamb. Okay. So they might have had, you know, everything was on the weekend except uh, VFW. Yeah. And we might have had five, maybe six, not counting VFW uh, contest. Mm -hmm. We might have had a local contest here with some people. I don't know where they found some of them drum cores at. But uh, then we had our state title. So, yeah, we're about six or seven. Six or seven every season. Okay. Yeah. Now, page for might have traveled as far as Milwaukee for that uh, big contest they used to have at a, uh, I forgot what they called it. They might have did the, I hated that parade the one time I did, that Splits Parade. Oh, the, yeah, the Splits Parade, yeah. I heard, oh, of, we heard about it. We never oh, marched in it, but we heard about it. Oh, you, you, you did right. You did right. <laughs> <laughs> you did right. And that was the last and paid for it, but it was like we didn't have the money to go to uh, California or Colorado or all that. Where they go to, they had the Mid American Open. It was someplace up in Kansas. Yeah, somewhere Kansas. Yeah, that the Midwest course was at, and the Lancers never made the finals, but paid for it. Uh, took a sixth place in 1970. Now I said, as long as Oregon Rebels, the Black Knights, was in that contest, he was not going to win. <laughs> not wasn't going to win. And <laughs> to this day, to this day, Mark, I cannot get a lot of them guys to talk about this stuff because it's still some anger in certain contests that they still harbor, and they're 60, 70 years old right now. Listen, LaPal, I gotta leave it there, but this was fantastic. I want to thank you so much for doing it with us, okay? Okay, that's no problem. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Intersection. The executive producer of the broadcast is Ms. Kim Jack Riley. Music is by Eric Lund. Until we meet again, please stay with us.